You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're continuing in our series through the signs of Jesus, looking at the Gospel of John and the signs that are recorded in this narrative. And this is a true story. These are true stories. They're not fables. They're not mythology. This is the Word of God. And so we know that when we open up uh, the Bible, we're hearing from God's Word, uh, inspired to us, and we ask that God would illuminate this Word to bring meaning to our hearts and to understand uh, what is going on? So we're today we're in John chapter six, the fifth of seven signs recorded, and it, John even tells us that if I were to record all the things that Jesus did, uh, it would there would not be a library big enough to fill all the volumes of work. But he records seven strategic miraculous signs uh, for the purpose of understanding who he is and why he did what he did. John chapter six, starting in verse one. Let's turn our attention to God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? so that the people may eat. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is God's word. Well, up to this point, Jesus' close disciples have seen Jesus do pretty amazing things, right? Just recall what he has done just in the first few chapters of his narrative. He turns water into wine gallons and gallons, hundreds of gallons of water into wine at a wedding. He storms into the temple and overturns tables, seeing people selling selling things in God's house. He heals a boy just by speaking a word at a distance. Last week, we learned that he heals a disabled man who was disabled for 38 years, unable to walk, and this man instantly gets up and walks. He told everyone that he was equal to God and worthy of all worship and devotion. The disciples have seen all of this. Imagine a person doing all this, it would draw quite a crowd. A lot of Instagram followers for someone doing something like this, right? He has become popular. Now, everywhere that he is going, he is drawing thousands of people. 
And this is what has happened to him. He's followed by a crowd of thousands. Wherever he goes, people hear that he is going to a place and they, they storm him, they flock to him. Maybe even up to 20,000 people are following Jesus at this time. Historians think it could be even as much as 20,000 people. And it's lunchtime and there's no food. And so here is this tension, there's this crisis, there's a logistical nightmare, but for Jesus, it is not a nightmare at all because we are told that he knows exactly what he is going to do. He is fully aware, he knows what he is going to do, how he will provide for them. But no one else knows. And this is where I feel the story becomes uh, personal to us pretty quickly, is that isn't this how God operates in our life a lot of times? We encounter trouble, we encounter nightmares, we encounter logistical difficulties and confusions. We have choices to make and we don't know the right choice to make. And God knows exactly what he will do and how he will do it and how he'll accomplish it, but he doesn't tell us. And you see, we seem to be at times the last one to know what is on God's mind, but he knows. And so this is intensely personal. It's very relevant for us because Jesus is not frazzled. He is not confused. He's not disturbed by the crisis that's unfolding, but we don't know what he's doing. And that's what leads to our own confusion, our lack of faith. The only person who has a full knowledge, God doesn't tell us right away how things will unfold, but his plans are made known to us over time. This is where I feel the story becomes so personal with that phrase, for he himself knew what he would do. And that's our lives day to day. God knows what he will do for you today. God knows how he will provide for your needs tomorrow. And that's why he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough trouble in itself. Rest in me, trust in me, believe in me. I know what's coming tomorrow and my plan for you is good. And yet we don't know what it is and we're called to trust in him. How many of us could just use a little bit more of what God wants, has in his mind. Like this story is setting us up to realize you and I live in a constant awareness of our limitations day to day. You and I don't have enough. We don't have the provision that we need in order to provide us for the comfort that we want. We all just need a little bit more, a little bit more time, a little bit more money, a little bit more patience, a little bit more wisdom. God, if I just had a little bit more of this, how about a little bit more energy, a little bit more sleep? Anybody woke up this today wanting a little bit more of that? A little bit more hair. Oh, people are raising the kids. You got 10 hours of sleep. Okay. <laughs> we all want a little bit more. And so we, are, we understand the constant physical limitations that you and I live in. And Jesus is creating a situation here that is showing us the obvious limitations in our life. And he's using this to draw a conclusion to our spiritual needs as well, that you and I have obvious limitations in meeting our needs. This story is not a parable. It's not mythology. It is historical event meant to exaggerate the limitations that exist in your life and in my life. Some of us try to uh, ignore those limitations and imagine that we can meet all of our needs, that we are self-sufficient, that we can do all things. And the fact that Jesus is not bound by our limitations 
but that he gives generously to us. He gives exceedingly to us. He gives to us so much so that our cup overflows. More than we ever need, he gives to us. We wanna see those two things. The great truth of this, of our limitations and God's exceeding blessing is revealed in this story and it is revealed in the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples that he has. And these conversations show us our own limitations. They show us the limitations of others even to meet our needs. And it shows us the abundance of Jesus's blessing. Why don't we look at these this morning? Let's see first that we cannot meet our deepest needs. You and I do not have within ourselves the resources that we need to meet our deepest needs, our deepest longings. So it starts with Philip. The dialogue starts with Philip. And Jesus turns to Philip and says, where are we gonna buy enough bread for all of these people? And we were told that he said this to test him. He, he said this to Philip and asked this to him to test him. He knows what he's going to do, but he asks Philip anyway which is strange, I think. Uh, this wasn't for Jesus' benefit. So Jesus doesn't go to Philip and say, where are we gonna buy bread for these people? He doesn't say that for his own benefit. So he says this for Philip's benefit. Testing can have a negative meaning. It can also have a positive meaning, right? Testing in a negative sense, it can mean like you're trying to, to kind of trick somebody. You're trying to get this like gotcha moment. You're trying to trick them and corner them. You're trying uh, to exploit that, their weaknesses, but Jesus isn't trying to exploit Philip. He's not trying to embarrass him. He's trying to strengthen him. Testing can have a positive meaning as well. It can be used to strengthen and reveal the quality of our faith. Not for Jesus' benefit, but for Philip. So Philip can, can see his faith in action or better yet, his lack of faith in action. God will do this with you and I from time to time. He will tamper with something in your life. He will tamper with it that it takes you to a place where you realize that that, that that thing had too far great of a significance in your life than it should. He messes with something. Sometimes he takes something away and we realize my hope was in that thing. I, I relied on that thing way too much because now that it is gone, now that it's been taken away, now that it's been messed with, I am not okay. I don't know where to go now. He'll mess with it. He tampers with it. Sometimes he even destroys it and takes it from us. And this is for our benefit. And this is to reveal how much we were trusting, relying, resting in that thing or that person for our happiness. And when he does this, it hurts so bad, doesn't it? It is so painful when Jesus messes with things in our life that we rely on for our comfort. But there's a common result. We come to realize that we placed far too great a significance on that thing or that piece, person that was keeping us from truly resting in God. And this is the common result that I see so often. And you've probably seen it in your own life too. There's something in your life that you're relying on, depending on so much for your ultimate identity, comfort, and security. You would never give it up on your own. And then when God messes with it, and takes it from you. You say, it hurts so bad for that thing to be ripped from me, but I would have never given it up. And I've realized now that I've placed my hope and my trust in something that was never able to meet my needs. And I realize I need to have that same hope in God. I need to have that same trust in him. Jesus does this with Philip. 
He's tampering with his faith. He's tampering with how Philip encounters difficult things. Where are we going to get bread for all these people? What Christ is doing to Philip is presenting a situation that is going to expose this mammoth-sized need and a mammoth-sized limitation in Philip's ability to provide for these people. So he starts doing the math. Where are we going to get bread? He starts thinking, okay, 200 denarii. Like, Jesus, there's maybe 20,000 people here, 5,000 men, and maybe the women and children are not included. And that's why some historians think there's as much as 20,000 people that are following Jesus. And he says, I'm doing the math here, Jesus. And, and if we just gave everyone a bite, it would cost eight months wage. I mean, try to put on an event for 20,000 people. And if you wanted to feed them a meal, it'd probably cost that much. Philip does what we often do when God shows us a, a glimpse of his plan. When he presents himself as one who could provide for our needs and a glimpse of his plan, we tear it apart into little pieces. We analyze each piece and then we stress over each piece and kind of poke holes in it to see if it's actually going to turn out the way he says. Jesus says, where will we buy bread? And this is revealing something to Philip. It's revealing to Philip, Philip, I plan to feed these people. And Philip responds with, where will we buy this bread? Jesus, more like how? Will we buy this bread? You're thinking of the wrong thing, Jesus. Where? How will we do it? And he starts picking that apart. When God says where, we respond with how. When God says what, we respond with when. This will happen. Yeah, but when will it happen? What are the steps that we'll take when it will happen? Jesus does this to expose our limitations and how we approach him. You see, when God reveals his character, his plan, his promises to us, we ought to resist bringing our own limitations into them. And God is presenting, I know in even just a small sense, he's presenting to Philip, this is my plan. I plan to feed all these people. And Philip immediately brings his own limitations into it as if to say, Philip is saying, well, how would I do this if I were God? How would I do this? You see, Philip thinks that there's no purpose in discussing buying bread if we don't have money to purchase it in the first place. Jesus, you're overlooking this minor detail here. You're talking about feeding these people when we really need to be talking about how will we get the money to buy the bread that we need. The weakness in Philip's faith was that it was based upon his own abilities and not Jesus' abilities. Often at times the weakness in our faith is that it is based upon our limitations and not his limitations or his ability. We bring our weakness into the situation. Philip was able to trust Jesus' ability only as much as he could understand how Jesus could make it happen. And here's the problem with you and I. We do not understand fully how God will do things. And we then read our own limitations into his promises. Look at it this way. When Philip was trying to find a solution to what Jesus would do, he may have asked himself, what would I do to fix this problem? Well, if I needed bread, I would need to get money. I could fundraise. I can get pledges. I can do a Kickstarter for bread, a start a committee to, find, to do some good research on where to buy the best bread, find the different markets, you know, to get bread what kind of bread fills the stomach the most? So he's going to do all this research, right? 
He's thinking of all this stuff. Philip's conclusion is ultimately that even the best that we can offer God cannot satisfy the hunger of all these people. The best that I could do is not good enough. Sometimes we act like Philip in that way. We have a tendency to limit God to working in our life with certain normal, ordinary, everyday means. But God is not limited by your understanding, your abilities, or your faith. He is not limited by what you can do. He is about to show us that he has no limits in what he can do. I grew up with a friend uh, who lived by this basic mentality. If I can't do it, it can't be done. You know anybody like that? Maybe you're like that. (laughs) If I can't do it, then there is no way for it to be fixed. And the common thing for us as kids was Nintendo. He said, if I can't beat Super Mario 3, then then no one can. (laughs) If I can't kick the ball past the flagpole, then it can't be done. You know anybody like that? We do this with God sometimes. How are you limiting the work of God in your life by reflecting your own inabilities and your own ability on what God is capable of doing with you? If there's a need in your life, it can be met in Christ. And that's it. If there is a need, no matter how mammoth the size of that need, it can be met in Christ. Jesus performs miracles. That's why these these signs have been revealed to us to show us something about his character, his power, his ability, his limitless goodness. Where have you limited God to act in your life? Where have you said it just can't be done? I, I don't see a way forward. I know that God has presented this to me. I know that he's revealed this to me in some sense. I know that I've read about his character and nature and in the scriptures for me, but I just don't see how it's possible. You, what you're doing is you are making God in your own image. You are limiting him by your own abilities. And he says, I am not limited. I am not limited. We can't meet our own needs. We cannot meet our, our deepest needs that we have, but Jesus can. And so we learned something about Philip and how we might be prone to approach Jesus like him. But now we also turn to this conversation with Andrew. So Jesus says, okay, let's, let's, let's see what Andrew has to say. And Andrew reveals to us that other people can't meet our deepest needs either. We can't do it and other people can't do it. Andrew was definitely more creative. Uh, let's give it to Andrew a little bit. He was definitely more creative than Philip. Philip's doing math and saying, we can't buy enough bread for all these people. Who's got eight months wages in their pocket just sitting around? But Andrew says, well, let's, let's, actually, there's this kid having lunch over here and he's got five barley loaves and two fish. Maybe that will help. I mean, that's, that's pretty ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's 20,000 people. He was, but he was more creative. He sees a little poor boy with a lunch and he possibly thinks, okay, I just saw you turn water into wine. Maybe you can do something with this meal. Maybe you could do something with this lunch, but, but then he quickly retracts a little bit. He says, but there are so many. He starts off good. He, he's a little bit more creative, but then he says, but what are those for all of these people? Instead of looking to what he himself can provide, Andrew looks to what others can provide. And he says, well, this too is not gonna meet our needs. Here's a troubling scenario for you, I'm sure. If after you get home, 
Today, from our time together this morning, you went home and everything you owned is on the front yard. Everything that you own, all of your possessions, all of your keepsakes, everything is out there. Your clothes, your car, your TV, your plates, your furniture, your baseball card collection, your cat, you know, whatever, everything you have is out there in the yard and everything is engulfed in a flame. Would you be ruined? Would you be ruined? Would you be utterly destroyed? You know, if after our our time together, you went home and you realized that everything that you had was gone, what would be left? Would you have, would you be ruined? You know, what if they're not so much tangible possessions that we find comfort in? What if they were abstract things like your health or your sense of accomplishment in life and sense that you have been useful in your life, the adoration of others, your sense of self-worth and purpose? What if those things were gone? Would you be ruined? What if those things were gone? Would you be ruined? And if you're looking to other things and other people to fully fill your hearts, to give you a true sense of meaning in your life, we'll end up realizing the same thing that Andrew realized, that these may be good things and they may go a little bit way, but how can they meet the needs that we have? They'll never be enough. These things are good, but they're not even close to being enough. So after two attempts, looking at our own resources and looking at the resources of others, there still remains this obvious distance between the problem and the solution, right? Two attempts, two of Jesus' closest followers and still no solution. There are 20,000 people, there's a grand canyon-sized need and only one pebble to fill it. So what is this story really about? Those are the two failed attempts. Let's look at what it is really about. It is about Jesus's exceedingly generous ability to meet our needs. Far beyond what we would ever think he is capable of. That he wants us to know, this is included for us to know that he is exceedingly generous in meeting our needs. After feeding all the people, right? He prays, he offers up this meal. He takes this meal that is offered. He prays and he multiplies it to feed the multitudes. And after everyone was fed and we are told their bellies were filled and they were satisfied, they had lots of food left over. And Jesus disappears, Have you noticed that every time a crowd draws near, Jesus leaves? He does the opposite of what you and I would do. When someone wants to make you famous, when someone wants to give you attention, when someone wants to tell you how great of a job you're doing, Jesus disappears. In fact, the only time Jesus Jesus doesn't disappear when there's a crowd is when that crowd is calling for his crucifixion. And this shows us something about who Jesus is and why he came. Jesus came not to be our celebrity, but our savior. He came not to be famous in the world's eyes or powerful in the world's eyes. He came to defeat sin and our greatest enemy. He came to satisfy us 
in, the, in our deepest needs and in the greatest way. And he does that abundantly. And he would not take the fame of the world until it was time to face the crowds as they call for his crucifixion. And then he says, now is the time to be with the crowds when they are going to kill me. He's not wanting to be our celebrity. He's not wanting to make us famous and comfortable. He's wanting to save us. He's wanting to meet our needs. He's wanting to give us the fullness of joy that is only found in the good news that he offers in his life and death and resurrection. He came not just to make our bellies full, but our hearts full of his exceeding joy, his exceeding love. He is meant to fill our lives with his love. You know, the next day we are told, uh, later in this chapter, we are told that Jesus comes back. After a night off, he leaves the crowd, he comes back, and guess what? The crowd is still there. And do you know why the crowd is still there? We're told, because they're hungry again. They're hungry again. They're looking for you. Here's a great next point to understand. Hungry people follow Jesus. Hungry people follow Jesus. They know Jesus are look, they know Jesus is someone who could satisfy their hunger. Follow Jesus if you're looking to be satisfied. Follow him if you're looking to be satisfied. This is interesting. We're told in this passage that everyone ate and they were satisfied. But here's the funny thing about food. You have to keep doing it. You have to keep eating it. You get hungry again. They ate and were satisfied. The next day, the crowds were still there, hungry again. But Jesus tells the crowds, in chapter six, verse 35. And you hear this every single Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus says to the crowds, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. John is connecting the dots for us. He's connecting the dots. If you are hungry, then eat. If you are hungry, then eat, and you will be satisfied. But in a few hours, you're gonna be hungry again. And he's showing us that if, if you have worldly cares and worldly desires and worldly needs, you can go to worldly things and they'll satisfy you for a moment, but you're going to be hungry and thirsty again. That's called addiction. You'll constantly be craving things that can never fully give you what you are desiring in life. These can be people that we run to. It can be a fame. It could be accolades. It could be the praise of people. It could be things. It could be possessions. It could be our own accomplishments. All of these things do bring momentary satisfaction, but they will never last. And we will be constantly and tirelessly pursuing satisfaction in this world and we'll never be truly satisfied. The crowds were still there and were told why they were there. They, didn't, they weren't there because Jesus, they wanted his theology. They weren't there because they, they loved his teaching. We were told they're there because they're hungry again. And John's connecting the dots. We have an appetite for God's acceptance. We have an appetite for joy. We have an appetite for his love and forgiveness. We have an appetite to wonder if we matter and if our life is of significance, we have an appetite to wonder if we're gonna be okay in this life, no matter what is thrown our way. And we can go to many things in this world to find the answer to that. But Jesus says only he can satisfy in that sense. 
It could only be found in Jesus. The more we come to realize that Jesus is all that we need, the more we come to enjoy all that he gives. The more we come to realize that Jesus is all that we need, the more we come to enjoy all that he gives. This story exaggerates two things that we've already seen. The limits of ourselves and the limits of others to meet our deepest needs. And the overflow of blessing of Christ when we believe in him. When we trust in him. When we follow him. He looked at the crowd and he knew what to do. He looked at the crowd and he says, I know exactly what to do. There is nothing that we can face in life where Jesus is surprised, where he's thrown off. He looks at your needs. He looks at your cares. He looks at your struggles and he knows exactly what to do, but he doesn't tell you right away. But hungry people follow Jesus. And when we come to him and believe in him, we are satisfied. This Philip and Andrew were tested. This is a diagnostic of our faith as well. It's a testing of our faith for our benefit. He'll often allow uh, struggles to come into our life in order to reveal our faith or lack of faith, in order to draw us to him, to trust in him. Jesus drew the crowds by the thousands, not because they loved his theology, because they were ready to give their life to him. They followed him because they were hungry. They followed him actually, John tells us, for two reasons. He was a highly effective and inexpensive healthcare provider. He was healing the sick for free. And he was giving out free food. And the people said, I can get behind this. This is what I want. Free healthcare, free food. That's what I want. And Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you why I did all those things. And when Jesus began to talk about what it meant to really follow him, do you know what happened? The crowds left. We don't want that. We don't want to give our life to you. We just want you to give us what we desire in our life. Because, but Jesus is more than a miracle worker. Jesus is more than a free meal. He is more than a security system. He's more than just a, a get out of hell free card. He is more than those things. He is the true bread of life that came down from heaven to give us eternal life. He was born not to be famous, in the world's eyes or to become powerful in the world's eyes. He was born not to make you and I famous in this life. He was born to die for our sins, to rescue us from God's judgment, to pour out his generous love in our hearts that overflows exceedingly. This is why he came. And so he tells the crowds, he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, we out. <laughs> That's uncomfortable. But he comes to us and says, I will overflow your life with exceeding joy, with exceeding love. And we say, that sounds great. And he says, you must believe in me. You must follow me. You must trust in me. You must abandon your own claim to your own life. And you must trust in me. I'm not one to leave anything left on my plate. Okay, that's just something you need to know about me. In fact, Janae will even ask me at restaurants, are you gonna lick the plate? 
She'll ask me that. Do you want to lick the plate? And I, I think I will. I'm not one to leave anything on my plate, but there's a meal that I have with one close friend in my life probably about once a year. And once a year when we do eat together, each of us leave one bite left on the plate. Because there's something that we understand and it's kind of a fun little ritual that we do. We leave one bite left on our plate because the Jews had this ritual and in fact it was even a law that they had that when they ate, they left the last bite to symbolize God has given us everything that we need and we still have some left over. I've been satisfied by God. I have been fulfilled by God. And even if everything else is taken away, I still have everything that I have because of God's favor and love and acceptance. To believe in Jesus is to believe in him in some exclusive and utterly different sense than we believe in anything else in the world. To believe in Jesus is to believe that not that he is just one other thing to bring us joy in life, but that real life, real joy, real satisfaction can only and exclusively be found in him. The real satisfaction that we are created to enjoy is found in Jesus. Something will happen this week in your life. Now listen, I'm not a prophet, I'm just practical, okay? Something will happen in, this life, in your life this week. Well, you will need to remember that Jesus satisfies beyond your own understanding, beyond your own ability to provide, beyond the ability of others to provide for you, you will encounter something in your life today, tomorrow, and the next day where you will need to hear the words of Jesus when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And you will be called to trust in him. And it will be difficult and you will start to rationalize, you'll start to strategize, you will start to plan out, how can he do that? Jesus will say, here's what I will do, and you will ask when. And he'll say, here's how I will do it, and you'll say, how? Or why? How much? Something will happen where you will need to be satisfied that God's love for you is secure, and your salvation is secure and nothing can undermine that. Stay with him. Rest in him. Feast on him and be satisfied. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.